because Rachel is going to be speaking to us too, and there's something really cool about seeing our youth get up and speak to us. It's something really, really cool, because there's always something we can learn from our, from our youth. And as a teacher, I, I learn something new every single day from, from my own students. Um, with that, I just want to go ahead and dive right into our scripture. We're reading from Jeremiah chapter 36 today, and we're going to start with uh, 36, 1 through 8. In the fourth year of, I don't know how to say his name, so I'm just going to call him Dr. J for now. In the fourth year of Dr. J, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, each of them will turn from his wicked way. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah was dictating all the words of the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on a scroll. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I'm restricted. I cannot go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord, and on the day of fasting, and read to the people from the scroll the words of the Lord that you wrote as I dictated. Read them to all the people of Judah who come in from their towns. Perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord, and each will turn from his wicked ways, for the anger and wrath pronounced against this people by the Lord are great. Baruch son of Neriah did everything Jeremiah the prophet told him to do at the Lord's temple, and he read the words of the Lord from the scroll. Then we're going to fast forward to verse 21 through 23, and this is when things get a little bit interesting. The king sent Jehudi, I think that's his name, to, to the scroll, and Jehudi brought it to the room of Elishama, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. When Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. Maybe not a good thing. Let's see what happens next. After the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah... Take another scroll, write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, while Dr. J, king of Judah, burned them up. I find this interesting. Let's just kind of paraphrase what we read a little bit. Right off the bat, we see God is pretty upset again. He's to the point, once again, where he's ready to utterly destroy the people of Judah and Israel because they were living in wickedness. They were ignoring the laws that were given to them. However, I find it interesting that God loves his people so much that he's willing to send them a second warning. The scroll that gets sent to the king, he's reading it. He probably doesn't like what he's hearing. He just cuts it off, throws it into the fire. The good news is that God is persistent. And instead of destroying the people after the king's action, he decides to have Jeremiah dictate the words once again and deliver a scroll to the king a second time. If you were to read a little bit further, you would see that not only did God repeat his words, but he added a few more things to the scroll. It's kind of like when my mom would say to me, if you do that again, you're going to get in trouble. And I do it again. If you do that one more time, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get a spanking. I'm telling you. He just added another thing. I was a pretty ornery kid growing up. Um, as you get to know me, you may figure that out. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a very deep thinker. Uh, I do have the ability to, deep, to deeply think, but I'm not a deep thinker. And as I was reading the scripture, I had to really reflect and figure out what the text means because the hardest part about reading the Bible sometimes is reading the Old Testament and trying to get something from it 
when we're little in Sunday school, we read the Old Testament, and it's all these, these mythical stories, and we just, sometimes we just take it as a story, and it's really, really tough to find the meaning beyond the Old Testament. New Testament's easy. Jesus is in front of us telling us exactly what to do. His, his, um, his disciples are in front of us telling us exactly what to do. Pretty straightforward. I mean, there's some room for interpretation, but it's pretty straightforward. Love your neighbor. You, it's pretty straightforward, right? The Old Testament's not that obvious. Sometimes it's, it's a little more uh, in-depth than that. So as I was reading it, the thing that kept popping out to me was one word, though it wasn't in the text, it just popped out to me, and that was the word purpose. I'm a music teacher, so I do have the opportunity to teach the same kids for several years. When I taught middle school, I had them through sixth grade all the way through eighth grade, and there was nothing greater than seeing them come to me as little sixth graders, as little middle school babies, then they get into seventh grade, and they're monsters, and then they turn to eighth grade, and they're functioning little people. That was really, really cool to see, to see that progression. Now I'm teaching elementary school, and I will have six or seven years with these kids. I will really see them as little babies, little pre-K kids, all the way up to fifth grade, right before they go off to middle school. My first year teaching, as any teacher would know, and any teacher would admit, I was terrible. I didn't know what my teaching style was. I didn't know how I could relate to the kids. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, so I did what I was trained to do, which was to teach music. I know it's pretty obvious, but when you go to college, you are trained to do something very, very specific. If you're an accountant, you learn how to do numbers. If you're a business major, you learn how to do business, but when you're a teacher, you're, learned, you're taught how to teach. That's what we do. But I wasn't happy. I wasn't fulfilled with just teaching music. And it wasn't until maybe halfway through that first year where I said, I have to reevaluate things. What am I really supposed to do? What is my purpose as a teacher? And this is what I came up with. My purpose wasn't just to teach music. It was to teach life lessons, life experiences, and use my classroom as a platform to deliver those lessons in hope and hopes that I can make these young people into better people. At that moment, everything I saw, everything I felt, everything I read became a life lesson to share with my students. There were times my students would come in ready to work on a song, and we wouldn't rehearse at all. I just had something I had to share with them. Obviously, being in a public school, I had to be very, very careful to not involve too much religion, because I could get fired. But I was sneaky, and I was able to do it somehow. <laughs> purpose. That was my purpose. I could have ignored that calling, stuck to just teaching music, and everything would have been fine. I could have taken the knife and cut off, column by column, what I was told to do. Yes, it would have saved me from having to be vulnerable to my students. Yes, it would have saved me from them kind of getting a little bit more into my lives. Yeah, that would have saved me a lot. It honestly probably would have saved me some trouble dealing with kids who got really, really close to me, and I had to, you know, they, got, they did some really, really silly things, and I had to correct them. It honestly could have saved me a lot of, a lot of trouble. But my purpose was to make a difference, not just to teach music purpose. I moved down here in 2006 following a girl who would eventually be my wife, and I'm very, very lucky. Uh, my father-in-law is one of the greatest people in the world. We used to tease him because we came from Ohio. When you live up north for as long as we did, you get tired of seeing snow and rain and sleet and slush and gray skies and cold weather, and one day it's 70 degrees. The next day it's 32. You don't know what clothes you're going to bring, and you just packed away all your summer clothes. Now it's 80 degrees, and you put it on. The next day it's 42. What is going on? We got tired of it. 
So my father-in-law, we labeled him the human calendar. And this is why, probably for the first year, he'd step outside on a day like today, big smile on his face, November 20th, 70 degrees, no snow. Aren't we lucky to live here? And we'd say, yes, Virgil, we're lucky to live here. The next day, November 21st, 70 degrees, the sun is shining, no snow. Aren't we lucky to live here? Yes, Virgil, we're lucky to live here. December 25th, on the beach at Christmas, no snow. Aren't we lucky to live here? Yes, Virgil, we're very lucky to live here. He was our human calendar. If you ever need to know the date, hey, Virgil, tell me about the day. November 20th. My father-in-law is also a former pastor. He is the king of sermon illustrations. The man could see a rock in the middle of the road and turn that into a sermon illustration. He's amazing at it. In my preparation for today, I asked him if I could borrow one of his most memorable and meaningful sermon illustrations. My father-in-law is a runner, and he runs the same path every time. And as he's running down the sidewalk, he saw this gigantic fruit tree. And when you're from up north, you don't see that many fruit trees. So he was amped up. He was excited. However, accompanying this fruit tree was a sign that said, this fruit is not for picking. He runs back home. He goes, hey, let me tell you what I just saw. And we kind of got a laugh at the fruit is not for picking sign. And even to this day, we see a fruit tree. Hey, Virgil, this fruit is not for picking. It's just something that keeps on coming up. When he shared that story with us the first time, we knew what was going to happen the next Sunday. That would be inserted into his sermon. And he'd bring up that fruit tree and the sign throughout several sermons, um, comparing the purpose of the fruit tree to the purpose that we have in our lives. A few days ago, he sent me a text message. He said, hey, do you remember the fruit is, not for tree pick, uh, fruit is not for picking tree? I said, yeah. It got chopped to the ground. It's all the way down. I said, oh, man, that's really sad. End of an era. It's an end of an era. He said, there's a sermon illustration there. <laughs> and I said, lay it on me, big guy. And this is what he sent back to me. He said, if the fruit is not for picking, then the tree is useless. We've been created to share the love of Christ and exclaim the wonder of God in our lives, and our lives are to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We can't just have that to ourselves because if the fruit is not for picking, then the tree is useless. If we are not sharing our blessings, our talents, our faith, our love bestowed upon us, then we are not serving the purpose or the good of the kingdom of God, and I dare say that we are useless. Purpose. This fruit is not for picking. We put that sign up sometimes to cover up our vulnerabilities. I do it all the time with my wife, with my daughter, with you, with people that we meet. We guard ourselves with signs, and this fruit is not for picking. But what is our purpose? One of the greatest days of my life happened two years ago. My daughter was born. And anybody who's had a child knows that your purpose changes immediately the moment you hold that child for the first time. Am I wrong about that? When my wife was pregnant, everyone said, your life's going to change. Yeah, we know. Get your sleep now. Thank you. But it doesn't come real until you're holding that child in your hand and your purpose changes right away. I remember um, going to the, the place to pick up her birth certificate. I waited in line for about 15 minutes. There were people in front of me, they looked irritable, they looked angry, they bickered at each other, and I sat there and just watched. I didn't think much of it because we were in a government building 
waiting for a government document. And anybody who's been to the DMV or the tax collector's office, you know what it's like to wait. After a while, I saw the clerk hand them their document, say, please look over this death certificate and make sure the information is correct. It made sense. You could see why they were upset. You could see why they were irritable. You could see why they were angry. They had to confirm the information on the death certificate. They left. I walked up. I got my birth certificate, and I sat down in my car right after that, and I thought, why, why did I just see this? And this is what I came up with. It's interesting that on the very same day that I'm picking up a birth certificate celebrating new life, another family was mourning the loss of a loved one and having an emotional job of picking up that death certificate and confirming the details. And it hit me just how short, how delicate, how fleeting life is, and how we are on this earth for such a significantly small amount of time. Why is that? What is our purpose? What is your purpose? What is my purpose? What is our purpose as a church? We've heard about the dash on the gravestone. The dash is surrounded by the date that we were born and the date that we died. And I'm sure we've heard this sermon illustration. I know I've heard it from my father-in-law. The dash represents the time we spent on earth, and the dash represents what we did with our lives because the dates don't matter. When I'm teaching my students about famous composers, they could care less about the time they lived and the time they died. They wanted to know about the dash. Sometimes it is easier to cut out, to cut down what we think our purpose is rather than to go through it like we're supposed to. It's easier to do that. But aren't we lucky that we serve a God that is so persistent that no matter how many times we ignore, we say no to, or cut down the purpose God has for us, He still pursues our hearts. At any moment, God could cut us down. Think back to the verse. The king is sitting there cutting the scroll. Maybe, maybe, we're not the king in this situation. Maybe we're the scroll. Maybe God is being represented by this king. Maybe we should look at the king in the story as God sitting there cutting the scroll. Because at any moment, he could cut us down, he could cut us off, and he could throw us into the fire. Our purpose. What is our purpose? Aren't we lucky that instead of God cutting us down, cutting us out, throwing us into the fire, that he has steadfast love for us? That through Jesus Christ, we can be redeemed and we can live our lives of purpose? That's what I got from the Old Testament Scripture today. Maybe we're the scroll. Maybe something's been written on us. I'm going to turn things over to Rachel because she's going to take us home here. And I'm really excited about what she has to say. So Rachel, let me pray for you as you're walking up. Heavenly Father... Please be with Rachel as she delivers your words and uh, be with all of us as we hear what it is you have for us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so I can't find my car key, and that's going to be really funny later. Let me just tell you that. Um, so <laughs> good morning. My name is Rachel Mallett, and I just want to say that I'm so grateful for the opportunity to speak to you all today. 
I feel a calling towards ministry, and I'm so excited to get some experience as a potential pastor. I mean, I get to make people listen to me talk every single Sunday. Who wouldn't love that? Today, I will be reading from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The people of Israel, God's chosen people who he had saved from the tiring life of slavery they were condemned to straight away from him. He provided them with everything they needed to survive and guidelines for living the most connected life to him as they could. But no matter how much they needed God, they got caught up in living their own lives, enjoying the luxuries this world provides. Religious leaders basked in pride and power and people found faith in other people. But that is not how we as Christians can live. We can't do it on our own. And this passage is a moment of renewal for the people of Israel in which they can return to God with his arms wide open. It is a comfort for a broken people. A key word in this passage is covenant. A covenant is a permanent promise between God and man. This is so significant in God's eyes that he has written it in our hearts. He has made covenants multiple times throughout the Bible. God promised Abraham that he and his wife Sarah would have a child and give life to a long line of descendants that would lead to the birth of Christ. Another covenant was the promise God made to Noah that after the flood, he would never destroy the earth in that way again. The new covenant ensures an eternal bond between us and God, that no matter how far we stray, he will always forgive, always love, and always look beyond our wrongdoings towards fulfilling our desire to know him. He promises a world in which no one shall be without the knowledge of God's unconditional love. This covenant became a part of who we are as children of God. This is a permanent tattoo in our hearts forever ingrained. It's actually pretty remarkable how much a covenant made thousands of years ago is so connected to how our relationship with God works today. It is because it is written in our hearts. God has made it forever a part of our nature as humans. That is why we feel incomplete without God. When our relationship becomes weakened, we feel it within ourselves, a missing piece. When we find our way back to that bond, that's when things fall into place. So I'm a pretty forgetful person, and I think everyone that knows me personally can account for that. In fact, the key I lost, I lost in the grass of the small parking lot for a week until someone found it. I lost my keys in a parking lot. Also, over the summer during our urban surf trip, we were each given a key to get into our dorms. If we lost the key, we would owe $75. And as expected, I lost the key. And a day after the camp was over, while we were still in Atlanta, I opened my wallet to pay for my lunch, and there it was. I had been staring directly at it for the past couple of days, and seeing as it was too late to give back to student life, Jacob wasn't too happy with me. It is in our nature to be forgetful. Life is a whirlwind, and we are constantly trying to keep up. We want to take time for God, but it just doesn't seem like we have enough hours in the day. We think to ourselves, he's always there. I'll just make time for him later. Right now, my schoolwork needs me. 
my job needs me, Netflix needs me, and we forget about God, even though he is constantly a presence in our life, the one that is there to catch us, the one that's there to fulfill, to work through the people in our lives to fulfill his purpose for us, the one who gives us an overflowing abundance of blessings. We forget to be with him, but God doesn't forget. He could be living it up in heaven right now, but he never forgets to listen to our prayers, to love us, and to invest in the relationship between God and man. We, on the other hand, leave him hanging. We get caught up in controlling our own lives rather than consider his plan for us. So because we are forgetful people, he created this permanent promise in our hearts. So no matter how far we drift into ourselves or the lives of those around us, we will always return to him with a stronger, renewed relationship. We often treat our connection to God like our relationship with others. It begins with excitement. When we make new friends or get into a new relationship, it is filled with enthusiasm for the other person. But then slowly it becomes more casual and the time spent making that person a priority may begin to decline. We go through periods in our relationship with God when our faith and connection is so strong. For me, it's moments on my summer trips when the world cannot interfere with my spiritual growth. The school year is hectic, and summer is the time for me to center myself and grow tremendously in my love for Christ and those around me. It is remarkable and transformative, but it doesn't last. I can't just stare into Lake Susan forever or move to Nicaragua or Redemption Community Church. I have to return to my everyday life and I have to learn to adjust, to be set apart and to make God the forefront of my heart. I've learned a few ways to train myself to prioritize Christ in my life. It's something I still struggle with and I'm constantly seeking new ways to find peace in God rather than how together my life is, which is not often. I often get discouraged in how many times I get distracted from my main purpose, but I need to remember that there's always a God to return to. This year is my junior year, and it gets pretty rough, and I feel like I'm constantly pulling at loose strings, hoping to keep things together. And as I'm so intently focused on completing one task after another, I don't rely on God for reassurance. I base my life on my grades or my schedule rather than finding peace in the fact that God is my safety net. Something that has really helped me involve God in my life is prayer, which I felt like I've never really been that good at. But this year I found a sense of realization and clarity by talking to God. Right before I fall asleep or any time in the day, I just sit there and thank God for the things that go well. We've all been blessed with great lives, and although we experience hardships, there's always so much to rejoice in. Then I pray for my friends and family. Maybe I'm thankful because I see God working through the lives of those I love. Or maybe I pray for those that I know are burdened with struggles. Then I get to my personal life, daily things that might stress me out. I pray for the fruits of the Spirit and humility gifts that will guide me to make thoughtful decisions and carry myself in a way that I hope will reflect God's love. I lay down my burdens because that is what he longs for. He wants us to rely on him and be vulnerable. One of my favorite verses is Matthew 11:30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He has the capability to lift us up when we are struggling to stand. We can go to him for the blessings, the wisdom, and the comfort. He will provide us with everything we need, and by training myself to be in conversation with, with him more regularly helps bridge the relationship that becomes weakened when I let external circumstances get in the way. 
I find myself growing more in awe of God's glory when I actively thank him for the good. I don't always take time to do this each day, but I've noticed that when I don't spend as much time talking to God, I feel myself becoming disconnected. It is when I am open with God that I feel the most clarity. Another way I've trained myself to return to Christ is involvement in the church. For example, in order to write this sermon, I had to be invested in what God wished for me to say. I am forced to delve into the Bible and learn about the nature of how God wishes to interact with us. By taking on roles where I need to prioritize my faith, I'm shifting my attention away from the distractions of this world, and God is able to reveal an abundance of blessings and revelations. What this passage signifies is the deep, deep love God has for each of us. No matter how self-centered the Israelites became, he promised that their sins would not be remembered. He is our God, and we are his people. That is a permanent bond that is so much more precious than we could possibly imagine. He longs for us. He wrote this message in our hearts so that we will always feel a desire to be in relation with him. In a sense, this could have been alluding to the Holy Spirit that resides inside of us, that is guiding our life choices and instilling a desire to know him. We go through ups and downs in our faith. It doesn't just move upwards in perfect growth. We make mistakes, we don't trust in God, we get preoccupied. But none of that matters, because we are renewed with this new covenant and when Christ carried our sins to the cross, never will we be without his love. But that doesn't mean we can take advantage of it. This is, the God of the universe wants to carry our deepest burdens and that is something that must be treasured. This must be a priority that the world cannot interfere with. So let's find those moments where we can stop stressing about our lives and go before God and lay everything down. Enjoy his blessings and let him guide us through the storm. This new covenant was not just created for God. It was meant for us too. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for each and every blessing you give to us. It might be difficult to focus on the good things in life when the pressures of the world seem to weigh us down. But no matter how distracted we get, Lord, we are so thankful for your unconditional love and for the message you have written in our hearts. So no matter how far away we drift, we can return to you and our relationship can build, Lord. Please help remember this in our everyday life so you can guide us to fulfill your purpose for us and that we can be broken vessels for you, Lord. Help us realize the good and help us focus on how you're moving in our lives. Lord, teach us new ways to delve into your word and to talk to you, Lord. We want to be broken vessels, and we want you to guide us, Lord. Thank you for this message in our heart. Thank you for this new covenant, Lord. We love you. Let your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, <laughs> I challenge us this week to focus on the good in life and to take time away from the busyness of our schedule and focus on building our spiritual growth and focusing on God's word and what he wishes for us to do in our life. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And all God's children said, amen. amen.
Your call. 